Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Wednesday, March the 29th, 2023. It is currently 5.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, if you've been keeping up with the podcast, you know recently we have spent a lot of time discussing baptism. First, we looked, we started a kind of a mini-series. We, we really completed that mini-series on baptism in the early church. We looked at three historical sources. We looked at the Didache. We looked at Tertullian on baptism, and we looked at Hippolytus on baptism. We got a good sense of the vastly different ways of approaching baptism in the early church. We saw some practices that obviously no one follows in 2023. No one has followed for a very long time. We saw how baptism began to develop into something that seemed relatively simple, but it became this more involved ritual and with all kinds of things added to it and all these things that added was added to it before, during, just, it, it just, we, we saw all of the developments that happened in church history. Now we only covered from around 50 to 60 AD to about 215 to 20 AD. So we only looked in that period of time, but I thought we did a really good job of looking at that. And I decided, well, you know what? We looked at, you know, basically from 60 AD to around 220, about 215 to 220 AD, that gives us a pretty good uh, view of the early church on the subject. Well, let's go look at the scriptures. We'll look at every book. We'll see when that book was written. We'll compare it to where the, the those books of the Bible, when they were written, where they fall in with these other historical sources. And, and what we'll do is we'll just start in Matthew. We'll go from Matthew to Revelation, and we'll, we will look at every single scripture that mentions baptism, has anything to do with baptism. We're going to look at what scripture says alone about it. We saw that church history, well, they were, they were all over the place. So we could, we it would be very interesting. I think it would be very beneficial. It would give everyone a scriptural, a true scriptural overview of every scripture that relates to baptism. We would deal with the difficulties, what it shows, what it doesn't show. We will we will honestly acknowledge the problems a verse presents, no matter what view you may hold. And I think we've done a great job. In fact, we made it to the book of Acts. And tonight at 7 p.m., I was supposed to be standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church, and we were going to move from Acts and try to see if we could finish probably most of the new. I don't think we would have finished. I think we made it through maybe Acts. I don't know how much further we would have made. So I think it still would have required Sunday to finish it. But things didn't work out that way. So I won't be standing at the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church at 7 p.m. I'm going to be right here in the studio at 7 p.m., and we're going to be, I'm going to be talking to you, but we're still going to be talking about baptism. So here's how we're going to do it. On Sunday, starting at 10 a.m. for the Sunday school hour, we're going to just pick right back up in the book of Acts. We may use the next hour to finish it. We may use Sunday school, Sunday morning, and if necessary, Sunday night. So we may use all of Sunday to finish our scriptural overview on baptism. We're going to try, we're trying to make it as, comp- we're not, we're not skipping one thing. We're looking at every single verse and dealing with every issue and complexity uh, that, that these verses present. And so we're going to, we're definitely going to do that. But I thought tonight, since 
I'm not going to be at the church. I'm going to be here in the studio. Well, we, we all acknowledged that Acts 2.38 presents lots of problems. And not only does it present lots of problems, everyone runs to Acts 2.38. Everyone. People who believe in infant baptism, Acts 2.38. People who believe it's a sacrament and that it's, that's required for salvation, Acts 2.38. Everyone runs to Acts 2.38 to provide their, their specific view on baptism. Um, uh, one is Pentecostals. They run to Acts 2.38. So you got Church of Christ. They go to Acts 2.38. One is Pentecostals. They go to Acts 2.38. Presbyterians, Lutherans, all kinds of other people will go to Acts 2.38. Everyone just, it just seems like everyone wants to use Acts 2.38. And what's interesting is all of these groups who run to Acts 2.38, they don't even agree, agree within themselves. Like you take all the people who think Acts 2.38 once and for all proves how we're supposed to baptize and who we're supposed to baptize and what it does or doesn't do, those groups who run to Acts 2.38 don't even agree with one another. So since Acts 2.38 is a relatively controversial passage that's brought up all the time, I thought tonight what we would do is we'll just do a sermon review. So I just chose a random sermon on Acts 2.38. And now the goal here is not to review the entire sermon. Now, we're going to start from the beginning, but we're really just going to see what they do with Acts 2.38 as it relates to baptism. But before we do that, let's do this. If you can, if you have the opportunity, open a Bible to Acts 2.38, right? So let's just, let's just look at exactly what the scripture says and what it doesn't say, because so many people read things into this passage that absolutely blows my mind. But here we go. Here we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, let's stop right here. This is what we can clearly know about the Scripture. Those who are baptized are those who can repent. Those who baptize are those who can receive the instruction from God's word. You could go so far to say those who are baptized here are those who believe. How do we know that? Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. So whatever you want to do with Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, absolutely, not only does it not support infant baptism, it argues against it. So if a, if, a, if a baby can gladly receive God's word, and if a baby can gladly repent, then they can be baptized. Now, whatever went, it's weird that everyone will grab those who want to somehow prove some kind of infant baptism. We'll go down to verse 39 and say, for the promise is unto you and to your children. I don't know how that proves infant baptism. Yeah, the promise is to your child if they repent, they can be baptized. If they repent, if they gladly receive the word, they can be baptized. Since infants can't do none of those things, well, then they should not be baptized. And that, that and I'm right now, I'm not in, I know someone's going to hear this and start emailing me all kinds of arguments about infant baptism. Go listen, look, listen, we spent hours and hours and hours look at the early church's attempt to try to support infant baptism, and it almost became a joke and how confusing it was. And we've are and and go listen to all the previous episodes in this series on baptism, baptism in the scriptures. And we I think we've already done a very good job of destroying that entire concept. And I think before it's over, we will 100%. But you can't run to Acts 2.38 and prove infant baptism. You can't. 
The person's got to repent. 41, they got to receive the word. So however, whatever order you want to do and other passages, they have to believe. So you got to believe, you got to repent, you got to receive the word. There's things there. So there's no way this refers to infant baptism. So that's the first thing. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now that the one that's Pentecostals go here, it has to be in the name of Jesus. What we, we, we think that the best way to understand this is clearly the audience here is Jewish and Peter is trying to demonstrate that your baptism is showing that you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what it's, I think, really there to design. I don't think this changes the baptismal formula given to us by Jesus that we're to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Th- he's trying to show the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and that to be baptized is they're, they're showing their faith, they're, 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 that they're following Christ, that they're following their Messiah. Now, everyone makes a big issue here that it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Now, some people say, see, that's how babies can get their sins remitted because they, when they're baptized, their sins can be washed away. Well, the only problem with that is they got to repent. They got to receive the word. And so this is not a promise for infants. Now, if you want to believe that it is sacramental, that it is salvific, and that it does bring about salvation, well, then you would have to go more of the Church of Christ direction, right? Right? That you have to believe, you have to uh, repent, you have to believe, you have to confess, you have to be baptized, all of those different things you have to do. But it would only be for those who can do that. So baptism would only save those who can be taught the Word of God, who can repent, who can believe. those are the ones who baptism would be essential for salvation. But the minute you say it's essential for salvation, you can't turn around and make some exception. So, but we think, or at least I believe that it has to be at least possible. I'm not saying it it may not be the most, it may not be the best argument, but I think the word for the remission of sins can be that you're being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because you've received the remission of sins. Because you've believed, because your sins have been remitted, now you're baptized. Others say, no, 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 you're baptized in order to get the remission of sins. Some say, it's like, I got a speeding ticket. I got a speeding ticket. I got a ticket for speeding, if I can speak correctly. You didn't get a ticket so that you can speed. You got a ticket because you were speeding, if that makes sense. That for is because of. You're being baptized because of the remission of sins. Now, a lot of people are like, no way. The Greek doesn't support that, doesn't allow that. But... That's at least something that we've discussed. And we, we've worked through all the complexities and we've acknowledged that Acts 2.38 presents problems. Look, there's no way to get around it. It presents problems. I'm more than willing to acknowledge that. Everyone has to be willing to acknowledge that. That it provides difficulties. So because it does, and we, we talked a little bit about it, I wanted to just grab a random sermon. So I just chose a random sermon. And we're just going to review it. And what we're going to focus on is we're only going to listen up until the baptismal issue has been addressed. If Now, since I don't listen to sermon reviews first, <laughs> we never know what's going to happen because there's a possibility they don't even address the baptismal issue. But I know the sermon's on Acts 2.38. So if they don't address it, I don't know why they wouldn't, but we'll, we will see. This is always the dangerous part, but that's okay. Uh, this, the summer reviews are fun because 
You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen, but we do know this. We're going to hear a sermon and we're going to be able to discuss theology, doctrine, hermeneutics, preaching. And so it always ends up fun in some ways. It sometimes ends up frustrating, but it always tends to end up in a fun way. So I hope so. Are you ready? Got a Bible open, Acts 2.38. Got a notebook, something to write with, something to drink. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Wednesday night. It's sermon review time. All right? And whenever it's sermon review time, the reaction should always be this. Okay, maybe it's a little over the top, but I hope you're ready. Here we go. Um, I believe this sermon, I believe it's from like 1977, 78, 79. I think it's from the 70s. You're going to know the voice instantaneously. Boom. So I just went to someone well-known, someone that I have been greatly influenced by. At the same time, we have a strong disagreement on a (laughs) a certain view about salvation. But you know what? It should be fun either way. All right, here we go. And just again... I didn't pick a sermon that I knew what was going to happen because I like being just as surprised as you. Here we go. The question that is posed by the message this morning dealing from Acts 2, 37 through the beginning of verse 42 is the question, how is a man to be saved? By what act? By what method? Through what person? What is the operation? What is the channel of salvation? You know, there have been saviors since the year one. There have always been those who were going to save the world and redeem man from all of his trials and problems and so forth. And there are endless, endless solutions offered to man's problem. But still the question goes on, how is a man to be saved? All right. I like the way this is being framed, that the question here, and he's going to look at Acts 2.37 and following, how is a man to be saved? How, how are we saved? How are we redeemed? How are we made right with a holy God? Now, knowing the preacher, I think he's going to spend a lot of time probably on the word repent, which we could get into a huge discussion on repent, what it means, what it doesn't mean. We know that there's radically different perspectives on it. We've spent a lot of time discussing repentance in our series on law and gospel, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time addressing that. I will offer maybe a counter perspective, but just so that you know, Acts 2.38, I didn't even address it when we were looking at it. Not only is Acts 2.38 controversial because baptism is mentioned, it has the word repent, and there is not agreement in Christianity. And what this is in this fascinating within Christianity, there's not agreement on the word repent, and within Christianity, there is not agreement on the word baptized or baptism or baptizo or the Greek or the English. And that crazy 2,000 years of church history, we still don't agree on the word repent and we still don't agree on the word baptism, baptized. We, we, we don't agree on what baptism is, who should get it, how it should be done. And that, isn't that just insane? To, just think about that. Wrap your mind around that fact. 2,000 years of church history. We have the Bible. We have Greek tools. We have interlinears. We have concordances. We have Bible dictionaries. We have Bible encyclopedias. We got churches everywhere. We got Christian radio sermons. We got billions of sermons. We've got everything. And yet, 
Christianity, the church, cannot agree on the word repent or the word baptism. If that does not just lead you to like a pit of total despair and depression and discouragement and make you realize that it really doesn't matter what you do because we're never going to agree on it, I don't know. And, and some people don't like when I point that out, but I'm sorry. It, there, there's nothing more frustrating that we that in one verse we can't even agree on two words. We can't even agree on repent and baptize. It's like, nope. No, repentance means this. No, repentance means this. No, repentance. Okay, we can't agree on repentance. All right, how about baptize? Nope, can't, can't agree on that. So just think, if we can't agree on repentance and we can't agree on baptism, then where is the clear message of how anyone is saved? Because he says that the mess, this is a message about how a person is saved. Well, the church, it gives a convoluted message in how you're saved because no one can agree. Look, no one can agree. Nope, no, 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 no. You gotta be baptized. No, you don't have to be baptized. No, you gotta be baptized at eight days old to wash away your sins. But that doesn't guarantee you heaven because you could lose your salvation. How many people, think of all the churches who believe baptism is required for salvation. Are there any churches who say you can lose your salvation? Some say, well, you gotta be baptized as a baby, but it doesn't save you. So it doesn't really do. So, I mean, it's just so convoluted. How is a man to come into a knowledge that he is secure, both for time and eternity? That there is a life of bliss not only here, but there, wherever that there may be. Biblically, the question comes repeatedly. How can I enter the kingdom? How can I be saved? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And there are answers coming from all over the place with the Scriptures as a reference. For example, the legalist says, keep the law. That's how to be saved. The moralist says, have your goodies outweigh your baddies. And God's got scales. The racist says, be one of God's chosen people. The universalist says, don't sweat it, we'll all get in in the end. The ritualist says you've got to do the right ritual, follow the right forms. And the strange part is that they all isolate Scripture to prove their point. Please note, everyone uses Scripture to prove their point. So you can look at all these individual groups and go, well, that group's messed up, that group's messed up, that group's messed up, that group's messed up. Of course, we always think our group is not messed up. But then even within our supposed group where you think that there's agreement, even amongst ourselves, we still can't agree. We can't, we, can't, we can't agree on repentance and baptism. We don't even agree on salvation. Or you say by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But, 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 if you don't do this and this and this and this and this, you prove you're never saved. Well, I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. Well, you are saved by imputed righteousness, but you don't have enough practical righteousness. Then for you don't have, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Lordship, no lordship, free grace, not free grace, easy believism. I just, I no, no, no agreement, no agreement. No agreement, no agreement, no agreement. But everyone is using Scripture. So let's see how he's going to not only answer the salvation question here, how is he going to answer the baptism question? Because clearly baptism is placed as a requirement in many minds throughout church history as not only essential, the means of salvation. The legalist, for example, may quote from James 2.21, which says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? However, he will avoid Romans 3.20, which says, 
by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The moralist comes along and quotes from John 5, 29, they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation, therefore it all depends on what you've done, good or evil. He will avoid Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The racist may quote Romans 11:26 that says, So all Israel shall be saved, and carefully avoid Romans 9, 6, which says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The universalist will select Romans 5:18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, Judgment came upon all men, so by the righteousness of one, Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men, and He will say it's the same all men, therefore all men will be saved. And He will carefully avoid Matthew 7, 13 and 14, which says, There is a broad road that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. The ritualist will invariably find the Scripture that accommodates his ritual. And one of the dominant things in, in theology today is ritualistic baptism. There are some people who believe you're saved by water. Okay, so it looks like there's a, there, maybe there's a high probability, maybe, that he is going to address baptism here. I hope so, or this whole podcast episode is going to is going to be a disaster but that's all we, we never know sometimes we think a a sermon is going to address something and after reviewing it we're like well I don't know why I just wasted that hour and a half but let's hope in this particular case he does but I agree everyone goes to scripture everyone quotes the scripture everyone thinks they're right we can always say that they avoid this scripture but then people would say we avoid the it's just everyone, I mean, look, we've talked about this so many times that since if you reject the church being the authority, well, we claim the scriptures are the authority, but the reality is the individual becomes the authority. And to say that, no, 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 the individual is not the authority. The, the church still has some authority. The church has no authority at all. The pastor has no authority at all. You can claim all day that they do. They do not. Because the pastor can preach anything. He can study it. And as soon as someone doesn't agree, they're gone. And that's the end of the story. So it's, it's like the individuals have the authority and the individuals, ha the individuals have more authority than the scriptures because the individual is going to tell you what the scripture means. And if they don't agree with your interpretation of scripture, then they claim that you're wrong and you're false. They'll either go to another church or start another church. So it, it's just, it's, a, it, it's, it's just basically spiritual anarchy. It's just a free-for-all. And as much as we don't like that truth, it's just a reality. And, and just look at how many disagreements there are in Acts 2.38. Others would say it's a combination of faith plus H2O, but basically comes down to the same thing. And invariably, for a proof text, they will find their way to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is in the context of what we're going to say, and they will rejoice exceedingly over repent and be baptized assuming that those are the two things that bring about salvation. Without either one, salvation is impossible. They will carefully avoid Romans 10, 9, and 10, which says that you're saved when you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, and there's no water in Romans 10, 9, and 10. So it's very interesting, and incidentally, you can prove anything by the Bible if you're sure to take it out of context, and it's being done constantly. All of the people who espouse false doctrine from Scripture, do that. And that's why Please note, 
Everyone uses the Bible to support their doctrine, and everyone says that someone who disagrees with them is using the Bible incorrectly or taking it out of context. So I'm a Baptist, so I'll be accused by Presbyterians that I'm not following the scriptures and that I'm taking verses out of context and that I'm not following scripture. I'm a Baptist. We'll look to the Presbyterians and going, you're not following scriptures and you're ignoring scripture and you're ripping things out of context. Both will claim we're using the Bible. Both will claim the Bible's the authority and both will tell the other one is wrong. It's, oh, there's nothing more, dis, like, I can't speak for others, people, but I, I the, every week and every month and every year of my life, I would grow more and more utterly just frustrated and sick of how that works. Right? He can sit there and go, all these people are doing this, and but then other people would be accusing him of doing that. Everyone accuses everyone of, not mishandling the scripture, everyone. This is the way it works. You know who handles the scripture correctly? Those who agree with me. You know who those who are, you know who mishandles scripture? Those who disagree with me. Isn't that convenient? Why well, you have to compare the scripture with the scripture so that you be sure you're accurate. Now, that- please note, every group says compare scripture with scripture to make sure you're accurate. Harold Camping used to say, compare scripture with scripture. And what was the conclusions he came to? See, the world was going to end in 1994. Oops, it was going to happen later in 2000s. Wait a minute, the church age is over. Everyone should leave their local congregations. If you stay in your local congregation, it's taking the mark of the beast on and on. Just one crazy, and he would play scripture alone, scripture alone, scripture alone, compare scripture with scripture. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Everyone says compare scripture with scripture as if it's the magic formula. You see, you can ensure that you won't do, but well, guess what? Everyone says that and nobody can agree. That makes this passage important because it is one that is used by ritualists to defend the baptismal regeneration viewpoint that to be saved, you've got to be baptized. That salvation is not simply by faith, it's by faith and baptism in water. But there's much more to this passage than that, but that alone would be enough for us to want to study it so we would have an answer adequate to that problem. Now in this passage, of course, we're dealing with the wrap-up of Peter's sermon. And it's a very, very important thing to look at what happens in response to Peter's preaching because we're gaining real principles here for our own witness, for our own evangelism, for our own preaching. Now, let me paint the scene for you by way of review, especially for you who have not been here for some time or at all. We're studying the book of Acts, and we've learned several things. From our study of John, we learned that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to equip the church to finish what He didn't finish. And on the day of Pentecost, beginning at the very first verse of Acts 2, the Spirit of God came. The Spirit of God then baptized all of those disciples gathered there in Jerusalem into the body of Christ, indwelt all of them. Please note that when you speak of baptism, and this is just very, very important, I see here. Uh, If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost immediately demonstrating, and and of course, we've already clearly demonstrated this in other parts of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before we even got to Acts, is that the word baptism does not always refer to water. 
It refers to being immersed, it being submerged, overwhelmed, made fully wet. It has a water implication, but it's just immersed into, submerged into, overwhelmed by. You're being identified with. You're you're being you're 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 so united with that you're immersed into it. It doesn't always refer to water. Just keep that in mind. Because people constantly, just as soon as they see the word baptism, I, oh, it's water. No, 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 no. It, it, it doesn't always, the context tells you what it's referring to. Now, obviously in Acts 2.38, that's referencing water baptism. We do know that, but I just want you to see that even in the first part of Acts, that's baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's not talking about water baptism. And filled them with the Spirit. In the meantime, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, which had gathered all of these people. And there were several hundred thousand, between a half a million and a million, wouldn't even be but a conservative estimate, in Jerusalem. And these masses of people began to gather at the sound of the hurricane because there wasn't any wind, just the sound. And as they came together to the location, here were all of these disciples going about speaking the wonderful works of God in the native languages of all these people who had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they were astounded. So the Spirit of God had been a, done a great job of publicity. He had gotten the crowd there. He'd done it by advertising, a sound like a wind. And then He did it by a sign, the miracle of speaking the wonderful works of God. And that was only a sign to point to the sermon that was coming. I told you before, signs aren't the end. They're only telling you where the end is. You don't crawl up on the sign and say, I've arrived. The sign's pointing somewhere else. And the sign of the wonderful works of God was directing their attention to what Peter was going to say. But the Spirit of God had gathered the crowd, had opened their minds by the sign... And the fact that they were speaking the wonderful works of God, that means reciting the historic deeds of God that every Jew knew, made it hard for the Jew to admit anything but that this was of God, because there are only two supernatural sources in the mind of the Jew, God and Satan, and it's for sure that Satan wouldn't be extolling the wonderful works of God. So they had to cope with the miracle and then the fact that these disciples were stating the wonderful works of God. And so they were confounded, and immediately at that point, Peter stands up and explains to them what's going on. And you can see how in such a fantastic way, the Spirit of God has prepared their ears to hear the message. And by the time Peter opens his mouth, they're hanging on every word. What is this that we're seeing? They cannot deny the phenomena, and now they're about to get the explanation. Peter begins his sermon... Verse 14 begins the passage that talks about his sermon. There are four parts, the introduction, the theme, the appeal, and the results. The introduction is explaining Pentecost. Peter bounces right off the living illustration that the Holy Spirit has provided for him. The second is the theme, exalting Jesus. The third is the appeal, exhorting the people. And fourth is the results, examining the effect. Now we saw, to begin with, the introduction several weeks ago. Incidentally, I timed this sermon to see how long it would have taken Peter to preach it. And if he talks a little bit slower than I talk, which would certainly be to his advantage, it would take about two and a half minutes. Now I realize that nobody could preach an effective sermon in two and a half minutes. I mean, I have to believe that. You understand why? <laughs> but I struggled with that, and I'll show you a little while later that I believe that what you have here is just a very small portion of Peter's sermon. Why it must have gone on hour after hour. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But anyway, we'll get to that. But Peter begins to preach, and first of all, he bounces off this illustration that the Spirit has provided, a beautiful illustration. 
explains to them that what they are seeing is the beginning of messianic times in terms of fulfillment. Joel said that in the last days he would pour out the Spirit. They're beginning to see what I call the pre-fillment of the ultimate fulfillment which will come in the kingdom. They're beginning to see the outpouring of the Spirit. It is messianic times. Verse 17 says it is the last days. Now we know that eschatologically the last days has already lasted 2,000 years. The last days is a Jewish term referring to the time of Messiah. And Messiah came once and everything in between till His second coming still embodies messianic times. So He's saying you're seeing the beginning of the end. This is messianic times. They all knew the, the meaning of the term the last days. They knew that was a messianic reference. Their Messiah had arrived. Their Savior had come. Their Redeemer had come. Their Deliverer was there. Their anointed King had arrived. And so He says this is messianic times. Well, if it's messianic times, there's got to be a Messiah, right? So he moves immediately into the theme of his sermon in verse 22, which introduces the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's a startling thing because they've just gotten through executing Jesus of Nazareth as a blasphemer. This is what uh, MacArthur is so good at, is breaking the text down like this, doing a great job here. Um, I would be jumping in more here, but what we're focusing on is where he's going. He's going to get us to Acts 2.38 is where we're going to really focus on. But I just want you to, I, I like he's providing all this context to Acts 2.38. So you may want to break down how he's breaking down the sermon that Peter preached. I am curious to know, I'm curious to see what he's going to offer as support that this wasn't the whole sermon, that this was only kind of like giving us the highlights of it. We'll, we'll see. And what a shock it must be to realize that that hope of their hearts for which they had waited all those centuries was now crucified by their own design. They had actually killed the one they had been waiting for. And this is what Peter convicts them of, this great sin. And first of all, beginning in verse 22, he wants to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah, and he does it by taking, first of all, the life of Christ in verse 22, and says that because he did miracles, wonders, and signs, he was being accredited by God as the Messiah. In verse 23, he takes the death of Christ and says the death of Christ was no accident, it was no Jesus was no victim, but rather this was ordained by God, fulfilling prophecy explicitly. Then he takes the resurrection of Christ, verses 24 to 32, and he says, Jesus Christ is the Messiah because of His resurrection. And he shows how the Old Testament prophet David, who was a prophet, it even says he was a prophet right here in this passage, verse 30, that David predicted Messiah would be a resurrected individual. And Jesus had done that, fulfilling David's prophecy. So he is Messiah by life, death, resurrection. Then he goes on to show that he is Messiah by virtue of ascension in verses 33 to 35. He is the Messiah because he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. They stood there or were eyewitnesses and saw him go. The conclusion then of his theme is in verse 36. Listen to it. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ or Messiah in the Hebrew. In other words, he has proven Christ to be Messiah. So the introduction explaining Pentecost and the theme exalting Jesus. Now he has really indicted them as executioners of their own Messiah. And he hasn't pulled any punches. He doesn't play around on the periphery. He goes right to the core of the problem. 
You see, the most blatant sin that a man commits is not lying or cheating or committing adultery. This, uh, the blatant sin in which every sinner lives is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's the cardinal sin of which the Spirit convicts. That's John 16, 8 and 9. When the Spirit of truth has come, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, of sin because they believe not, what? On me. In other words, the dominant thing that a man must recognize is that he is a rebel against God's plan and against God's Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter shows them that they have executed their own Messiah and their own Savior. Now I want you to see his appeal, beginning in verse 37. Okay, now we've got the background. We've got the sermon broken down, done really great. That's awesome stuff. I mean, that is... That is great stuff. I would, I would tell you to write down that outline, so just look at it, read that section over and over and over so you really understand Peter's sermon. But what we want to come to, we want him to get to verse 38. That's where we want him to go. I want to hear how he's going to handle verse 38 because this fits perfectly with what we're currently doing, looking at baptism in Scripture. So we're getting a sermon review of how someone's going to look at how baptism is mentioned in this particular Scripture, which we've already covered in our series but we, all we did, it was just kind of struggled through it. Let's see how he handles it. Let's see how he handles it. And it's exhorting the people. He exhorts them. Verse 40 says, with many words. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, whenever you go into any kind of sales, some of you people are probably in sales, um, you're told that when you, when you go to sell your product, be sure that you don't just tell them about it and leave. The whole idea is get them to sign on the dotted line, Right? And you never have a salesman come to your door and show you the product and then say, isn't that a nice product? I'll call you sometime if you're interested. Oh, you'll never have a salesman do that. They want to get in there, get that little paper out, get that little pen out, and here we go. Well, this doesn't mean anything. You just sign in here and you're in hock for the rest of your life, see? The, the object of any kind of sales is when the promotion's going on, that's when you want to clinch the deal. Anyone knows that. So Peter doesn't just say that and say, you're all dismissed. He doesn't wrap up with verse 36, powerful thing, and say, all right, everybody, that's it. If you'd like to know anything more, call uh, the office, or there'll be literature distributed. No, he wanted to clinch the deal, obviously. Now watch what happens in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard his sermon, powerful sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brethren, what shall we do? They call them brethren because that's a term used among Jews. Doesn't necessarily mean Christians, it means Jews. They were Now, only thing I would add a little different. Now, this is MacArthur way before he became more reformed in his soteriology. There's a little bit of a different MacArthur here. I just verse 37 is not Peter and the apostles uh pulling, you know, finishing the sale. No, this is the people have been convicted by hearing that they're guilty. They, in other words, they have heard the law. You killed Messiah, and now they're pricked in their heart. There's the conviction that comes from the law. And they say, uh, Peter, uh, and, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter doesn't do anything. He, he just preaches the sermon. He doesn't say, well, I've got to, I got to close the deal. I got to get him to sign the paper. No, he doesn't. He preaches the sermon and stops. Then they say, what must we do? Then Peter answers. He doesn't come to them and go, no, no, no. Hey, you need to do something. Hey, hey, hey. No, no, no. He just preaches the sermon. They respond. Peter's response is after their response. 
Peter's not trying to seal the deal or get, he doesn't put any pressure on them. He doesn't try any manipulative techniques or sales techniques. He preached the sermon and stopped the end. And then they're like, what must we do? So let's just make sure we, we, that's the only part I would, I would disagree with uh, there, but let's, let's, let's continue. Brothers in terms of Abrahamic ancestry. What shall we do? Oh, I like that question. That's good. They're in the right spot. They're desperate. That's where the Spirit of God wants to take every man in terms of conviction, to the place of being desperate. Now, notice it says they were pricked in their heart. The word that is used for prick there is the only place it's ever used in the New Testament. Interesting word. It means to pierce or to penetrate with a needle or a sharp instrument like a knife. It's a, it carries the idea of suddenness. It's like jamming a dagger into somebody. It's a very piercing, sudden grief. In other words, the idea is they were going along complacently, you know, in the traditions of Judaism, and they were just doing what they always did, and, and Christ came along, and they executed Christ, and they continued to go along, and all of a sudden, wham, the knife came in on the day of Pentecost. And they were just cut to the heart, and grief came as a result of it. Suddenly. You say, well, what was it that messed them up so much? What was it that got to them? Well, I think there were several things. Let me suggest them. Number one, the sorrow that the Messiah had been put to death. I mean, that's a terrible thing. They've been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. And finally, when the Messiah gets here, they have put him to death through the hands of the Romans. And that's a terrible thing for them to have to realize. And I think that cut them deeply. Those that were convicted were convicted because they saw the Messiah had come and they had executed the Messiah. Horrible thing. But on top of that, secondly, I think that they were cut to the heart because they had a deep sense of guilt that they themselves had done it. Not only had they eliminated Messiah, but they had eliminated Messiah. See? They had actually done it. It would have been terrible to have lost Messiah had somebody else done it, but they had done it. And so there was a horrible sense of guilt. And then thirdly this, Peter had announced to them in no uncertain terms, and there were multiplied witnesses to prove it, that this same Jesus who had been crucified was now alive. And so they were afraid of His wrath. Why, Peter had said down in verse 35 that someday he was going to make his enemies his what? His footstool. And that's the picture of the heel on the neck. There was going to be judgment on the enemies of the Messiah. And here they were realizing not only were they, had they lost their Messiah, but they had done the execution themselves, and they were heaped with guilt because of that. And then they were aware of the tremendous response of God toward His enemies. We have killed the Messiah. What could be a worse sin in all the universe than that? Nothing in their minds. Those who were really convicted were convicted that they had done the worst thing imaginable. They were right, of course. And the fear of His wrath, they were scared of His vengeance. He was alive again, and He was going to make His enemies His footstool. They were scared. Fourthly, I think they were grieved to the heart because they couldn't undo what they did. They couldn't do a thing about it. It was done, and they were cut. And they made the right answer. Look at it in verse 37. Men, brethren, what shall we do? See, boy, that's the spot to be in. To avoid the wrath, to make right the wrong, what do we do? They were desperate. They had nowhere to go. They had nothing to turn to. They were stuck. What shall we do? 
Oh, it's a beautiful thing because it's just that kind of hopelessness that Jesus Christ can meet, you see. And as long as a man thinks he can do it on his own, he can never know the experience of real salvation. As long as a man brings any of his own works or his own thoughts or his own ideas to add to what he thinks is salvation, there's no way. It's all of grace, Paul said. It's not until a man is desperate and says, what do I do? He has nowhere to turn and no answer. At that point, God intervenes with saving grace. The Apostle Paul came to that point on the road to Damascus in chapter 9 of Acts and verse 6. Paul was really breathing out threatening and slaughterings, verse 1 says. On the way, the Lord stopped him. And verse 5 says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Oh, boy. Can't you read what's going on in Paul's head? The next verse says, And he trembling and astonished. You know he must have shook from top to bottom. A voice out of heaven. He's blinded. And this voice says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. You know what Paul said? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? See, what do I do, right? He was scared. As well as convicted, he had fear. But perhaps even a more graphic illustration is the illustration of the Philippian jailer. In the 16th chapter of Acts, you remember they were having a great time there in prison, singing away and praising God and just having a lot of fun praying. And the prisoners heard them and suddenly there's a great earthquake. When the foundations of the prison were shaken, immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. Prison started shaking, doors flipped open, everybody was loose. The keeper of the prison, knowing he'd have to pay for, with the loss of prisoners by his own life, waking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. Paul walks up and says, do thyself no harm, we're all here. And this guy was shocked. And it says in the next verse, he called for a light, sprang in, and came trembling. Again, he's scared. He is scared. And he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, God exercised fear. He allowed fear to bring that man to a trembling place. He brought a measure of fear into the heart of Paul. He brought a measure of fear into the heart of these Jews over what they had done in rebelling against their own Messiah. And they came to that point where they had a deep sense of evil, a deep guilt, where they feared the justice of God and the retribution of His Messiah. A desire to be saved from that judgment brought them to the place where they said to Peter, what do we do? And it is just that state in which the soul is prepared to receive the Savior. It is just that state which is ready to yield to Jesus Christ. Their guilt is fully exposed. They are feeling the pain of the apostles' words. Their consciences are stung by the sense of sinfulness in crucifying Jesus. They are convicted. If conversion is to be genuine, it is the offspring of conviction. I love the passage that illustrates this in Zechariah chapter 12. Maybe to some of you... He's doing a lot here to get the conviction idea here. The conviction, conviction. We've talked a little bit about this a little bit um, in our long gospel, um, you know, now you always have to be careful here. Just, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just remember, not everyone reacts the same way. Now that you want, there's got to be, you're, you've got to be convicted to some level, obviously, right? You've got to be convicted. You've got to realize you're a sinner and you've got to, in a sense, change your mind about sin and about God and turn to him. But you just, um, 
exactly what it's not always going to look the same or feel the same because people are radically different. So because if you're not careful, you'll create, well, unless you acted like this or felt this, then your conversion isn't real. And so you always got to be careful with that. But now he's going to go to Zechariah and give us an example. An obscure passage, but very, very important. In Zechariah 12, we have some of the predictions of what's going to happen in the tribulation in the time when Israel is finally redeemed. And I want you to notice what happens. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, their salvation for Israel. Now watch. And they shall, here's the first thing, look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Verse 12, And the land shall mourn. In other words, to begin with, in the restoration of Israel, there's going to be a conviction and a guilt over the execution of Messiah. During the tribulation, the Bible says that Israel will be saved. And at that time, the salvation is going to come about, first of all, by conviction as they recognize they have pierced their own Messiah. And the pain and the anguish will be like having murdered your own child. That's how sacred Messiah is. And that's exactly the same pain and anguish those people must have felt on the day of Pentecost. Just as bad as if they had taken some weapon and executed their own firstborn son. And then I love this in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David. In other words, once conviction comes, it's followed by cleansing. But cleansing follows conviction. And to bring anybody to Christ apart from conviction is not to bring them to Christ at all. It's an aborted birth. Now, I, I do agree here. No, to, if you, you can't bring someone to Christ without conviction, I just, but the conviction comes from the law. So that's, where, that's why you have to preach the law. You've got to see your sin. You've got to see your sin. All right, I'll back this up a little bit. But cleansing follows conviction. And to bring anybody to Christ apart from conviction is not to bring them to Christ at all. It's an aborted birth. Conviction is the key in the hand of the Spirit that opens the heart to salvation. And I believe the con conviction, yes, I believe in the, the Spirit's job in, in the work of conviction, but it comes from the preaching of the law. You give the law and you point out you're guilty of the law because the law condemns and the law convicts. And to everyone that you preach to, you need to preach with conviction. And we, we like to water sin down, you know. We like to hide from it and pad it a little bit so it isn't as gross as the Bible paints it. It's not right to do that. Men need to be convicted of sin. You need to realize that you're a sinner not only because you do sins, but you're a sinner because you live in rebellion against God. You say, I don't rebel against God. Yes, you do. You rebel against God by the very fact that you haven't committed your life to Jesus Christ. That and we got it. And now, again, this is earlier on before MacArthur kind of comes more reform. Remember, you are a sinner not because of what you do. You're not a sinner because of what you haven't done. You are a sinner because of what you are. You are a sinner 
from conception. You are born in sin. You are a sinner with a sinful nature. The reason you don't do the right thing and you do the wrong thing, the reason your actions are messed up is because of what you are. You're not a sinner because of what you are. You do these things. You're not a sinner because of what you do, but you do those things because you are a sinner. You didn't become a sinner by what you do. No, you were. Are, you are a sinner. That is your nature. That is who you are. And then your sinful actions flow from it. You don't become a sinner by what you do. You do the wrong thing because of what you are. And that's very, 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 very important. That's God's command that you do that and you've not done it. You live in rebellion against God. For that, you are the vilest kind of sinner. And so was I before I came to Jesus Christ. I spoke on this subject and a young man came to me afterwards and he said, you know, he said, uh, I'm not a rebel against God. I, I don't hate God. I, I, I don't feel like that at all. And I showed him from Scripture that he that is not with me is what? He's against me. I said, you may be moving that way, my friend, but until you come to Jesus Christ, you're in open rebellion against God. Just make, make sure we understand. Even after we come to Christ, in practice, we're still a sinner. We still have the same sin nature. We say, still have the same rebellious tendencies and desires. The only way that we're not a sinner is in our position because of imputed righteousness. This is where it always gets conflated and confused and convoluted and messed up. No, it's not like, hey, I used to be this really vile sinner and then I became a Christian and I'm no longer a vile sinner. No, you're still a vile sinner, okay? Just in, and it's, it's in practice, in your position, you're no longer a vile sinner. Now you're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, all has become new. In your position, in your practice, obviously not all things have become new because you still have a sinful nature. That's why we continue to sin because we're still sinners. And this is true. And so many times we let people off the hook on the basis of, well, you know, you're a liar. Told some lies. Yeah, told some lies. See, you're a sinner. Now repent of that. That's not what, that's superficial. The repentance comes in a repentance from the total life of rebellion against the principles of God as exemplified in what Jesus did and said and was. Don't ever let anybody off short of that. When you preach, you preach with conviction. Now, you say, well, if you preach with conviction, look here, 3,000 people will get saved. You can get out there and you can preach with conviction and they'll come to Christ. That's true. Why not preach with conviction then if they're going to come to Christ? There's another reaction that's possible, though. They may not all come. Verse 33 of chapter 5 says this, And when they heard that, here's another sermon, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. So there are other reactions. You say, I don't know if I'm so hot on this deal again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not everybody's going to get... Some people might decide to slay you, but there, you don't... That's, that may be a little rare. There are other reactions. Uh, chapter 7, verse 54 is not so bad. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. <laughs> See, that's not quite so bad. I mean, I could take a little of that uh, anger. I'm not too sure I could take being slain. You know, that's a little harder. You know, you can't assume, well, I've preached with great power and I've exalted the message of repentance, therefore everybody's going to flock. You'll get the reaction, all right. Some will come to Jesus Christ, some will grit their teeth and gnash on you, and others may design to slay you. But does that mean you don't preach it that way? Does that mean you water it down and don't tell it like it is? God forbid. God forbid. You say, well, how do you preach with conviction? How do you convict men? Do you tell a lot of really convicting stories and a lot of little stories? Just remember this, that first of all, 
we don't convict. The law convicts. So we preach the law. The law convicts. The spirit convicts. The spirit has to do the work. Uh, the spirit has to be the one. God has the one who has to grant repentance. We can manipulate it, but if it's real genuine, God has to, be, God has to grant the faith. He has to grant the repentance about kind of scary little tales and do you do you use a lot of emotional little gimmicks and get them all whipped up into a real fear thing no you don't no you don't the great tool of conviction is not telling stories the great tool of conviction is the word of god the tool of conviction is illustrated to us graphically in hebrews 4:12 listen to this for the word of god is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do it is the word of god that is the convicting agency in the hand of the spirit of god we don't need all kinds of little convicting gimmicks. The Word will do its work. It is a piercing thing. And so when you preach, if you preach, when you witness, when you witness, you witness with great conviction of sin. Don't ever stop short of that. If there's more to it than this, here's a nice thing, would you like it? That's not all there is to it. Anybody would like a nice thing. There's more to it. And so they have come to the place of conviction. They want to know what to do. And Peter, oh, is he in a good position. What do we do? And he replies, listen in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice he hasn't said anything positive until that final statement of verse 38. Okay, here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. We've made, we've waited, we've taken 57 minutes to get here, but we've heard some very interesting stuff, some good stuff, a, a good breakdown of Acts 2, uh, 14 uh, through, uh, through uh, 36. We've got a good breakdown of that. We've got an interesting discussion about conviction, interesting discussion about preaching. Okay, all right. So here we go now. This is, this is what we want. What is he going to say in regards to baptism? He is just hammered on conviction of sin until finally he says, when you've repented and baptized, then you'll experience a marvelous thing in the gift of the Holy Spirit. But his message isn't based on that. It's based on the fact that they have no right to exist as a rebel against God. No right to exist. The first thing he says, let's take it piece by piece, is repent. Now, what does repent mean? Metaniah means to turn around and go the other direction. It means a 180-degree turn from going that way to going that way. Oh, boy. All right, he's going to have repentance not as a change of mind. He's not going to have repentance as a change of mind. I would just challenge you. You don't have to believe me. Once again, nobody within Christianity can agree on what the word means. Just grab, say, the Blue Letter Bible app. The Blue Letter Bible app. Uh, Go to Acts 2. We'll see which Greek word it is. Acts 2. We'll go down to verse 38. Click on the interlinear, go down to the word repent, and it is this Greek word. Here we go. Strong's G, 3340, metanaeo, metanaeo. Metanaeo, metanaeo. Now, it's the word he said, metanaeo, but just look at the, it's used 34 times. What does it mean? Look, the metanaeo means to think differently or afterwards, to reconsider 
It's an outline of biblical usage to change one's mind. Repentance, metanaeo, change of mind. Change of mind. It means change of mind. Everyone immediately goes, it means to stop and turn and go the other direction. No, it means to change your mind. That's what the word means. I do not know why this is such a, a debated topic. But it is, and everyone will will do their own thing with it, but it means to change your mind. That's what it means. It's absolute opposite. I'll never forget Sharing Christ, a Hollywood Christian group, actors and actresses. A young Mohammedan came forward, said, I'd like to receive Jesus Christ. I thought, boy, this is something. He was an actor. And I said, you know, Mohammedans don't come to Christ like that. And so he prayed and received Christ, and he got up, and I'll never forget, looked at me and said, isn't it wonderful? Now I have two gods, Jesus and Muhammad. And I said, I think I've heard MacArthur tell that story a couple of different ways, but okay, all right. Just, I've, I've heard so much of MacArthur preaching. I think you've, I've, heard, uh, I've heard the story that was on an airplane, but okay, but or whatever. I think I know the sermon that I'm referencing. I have to, it'd be interesting to see, but that's okay. That's okay. When you start giving illustrations, sometimes you can confound and confuse the stories, but okay. All right. No, no, it doesn't work like that. You don't go up to the shelf of life and say, I'll have uh, one of those and one of those and Jesus and no, it isn't that way. You turn from all that is a part of your life in terms of sinfulness all the way around and you commit yourself totally to Jesus Christ. All right, so before you can be saved, you got to turn away from everything to follow Jesus Christ. Now, what they typically say, well, you don't have to turn from it at that moment. I mean, you just got to be willing to turn from it. But what if I turn from it and I don't really turn from it because I go back and continue to sin and sin and sin and sin and sin? Because you sin and I sin. We all continue to sin. So is that really turning from it? Now, we do change our mind because now we acknowledge it is a sin and we've changed our mind about God because now we know he is our who we turn to for salvation. See, change your mind, I can easily explain, right? Hey, you must repent. You must change your mind about sin and about God. You must do that. Okay, now God is the one who grants that repentance. But other preachers want to say, no, 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 you have to turn from your sin. Okay, well, what does it mean to turn from my sin? Because one, I... Like, how do I demonstrate I've turned from my sin? Well, go go live your life for three years. If you really show you've turned from your sin, then you can get saved. Well, no, no, no. They just have to be willing to turn from your sin. But what happens when you say you've repented, supposedly turned from your sin, you've been saved now for 13 minutes, you know, you go home and you do, you get drunk or you go home and you go back to your girlfriend who you live with and you engage in uh, premarital sex. Or did you... They didn't really turn from their sin. Well, 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 it's a slow process. No, no, either repentance means to turn completely from it, okay, or it means to change your mind. Changing your mind about sin doesn't mean you're going to stop sinning. It just means you acknowledge it as a sin because we all continue to sin. So when it says it's a 100, you know, an 80 degree turn, well, how do you explain why Christians continue to sin, 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 sin? Did they not really repent? No, it's a change of mind. Now you say, well, that change of mind should lead to a change of action. In theory, but there's lots of times it does. Lots of times people know, I, I know I shouldn't do this, but they do it anyway. You can, it's a change of mind. I, I, uh, I just, okay, so many issues there. But all right, let's see now if we're going to get to the baptism part. Nothing short of that. Jesus Christ is not an, an addendum to your activity. He's not a little divine salt on your diet of human activity. It's total commitment. 
And so Peter says, turn right around and go the other way. Now, in 2 Corinthians 7, you know that little passage around verse 10 that says that the world has a certain kind of sorrow, but it's not godly sorrow. It's the sorrow because you got caught, you know? That's not the kind of sorrow he's talking about here. It's the sorrow that makes you turn all the way around. He says, I don't want you to just be sorry that you did this to Jesus. I want you to be so sorry you turn from your old and you turn to Him. Now, I'll say more about that in a minute. But repentance, you see, repentance is more than fear of the consequences. And at this point in their heads, that's kind of what they're thinking. And we don't want to get stepped. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. He's not even acknowledging metanaeo is a change of mind. He's not even he's not even using that language. It's just you turn from it. You turn from it. The, the Greek word, oh, it's just so, just, it's so irritating that we can't within Christianity agree on the meaning of a word. It's just so, oh, I just don't understand sometimes. Done by the Messiah. There's, there's got to be deeper conviction. You see, false repentance dreads the consequences. True repentance dreads sin itself, you see. Laying aside all punishment, true repentance hates sin because of what it is. It's an affront to God. And the mere fact that it is evil and that God hates it is sufficient reason why the truly repentant heart hates sin and forsakes it. Okay, if the truly repentant heart hates sin and forsakes it, then Christians should be sinless. You can't forsake something and keep doing it, right? You can't. You typically don't do what you hate, right? Typically you don't. So if you hate it and you've forsaken it, I mean, why are we still committing it? Well, because guess what? We haven't truly forsaken it and we don't truly hate it. Oh, we may hate it in theory, but our heart, our sinful nature, which doesn't go away, continues to love it. Now, these Jews were afraid of punishment, but they had to be more than that. They had to be willing to turn from sin and come to Christ. So Peter says, turn all the way around. There's no salvation, mark this, there's no salvation in conviction. And often trembling is substituted for godly fear and the fear of hell for the fear of God. That's only the beginning. There must be a turning to Jesus Christ. True repentance forsakes sin and comes in total commitment to Christ. And there's an urgency in what Peter says here. He says, repent. Repent. He fires it out. It's an aorist, which is an act that is in a moment. It's an immediate thing. Complete turning in an instant. You see, salvation is not a question of education. It's a complete turning of the mind. <laughs> you're changing your mind about sin. You're changing your mind about God. You're changing your mind about Jesus. You're changing your mind about salvation. Salvation is not a process. It's an act that happens in a moment. And I think too little do we preach repentance. Too infrequently do we let people off the hook on the basis of, here's a good thing, take this good thing. Oh, there's so much more to salvation than that. That's why we get so many tares among the wheat. In the book of Acts, you check, check Acts 3.19, 8.22, 11.18, all the way through, 20, 21, 26, 20. And all I talk about is repentance. Then you go to this one in Acts 17.30 and what it says, God commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. There is no salvation apart from repentance. 
Now, just imagine in your mind, if you can, you can't, and neither can I, really, but let's do the best we can with it, the Spirit of God helping us, to put ourselves in the shoes of those Jewish people. They are locked into a beautiful and glorious and beloved tradition. They are part of a community that has a uniqueness like no other community in the world. They have a bond of nationality that is glorious and in which they exult. They have deemed as a nation that Jesus is a blasphemer. Therefore, He has been executed. Now Peter says to them, turn around and say about Jesus, He is who He claimed to be. Cut the cord from all your past life. Change your mind. <laughs> he didn't say all this other stuff. Metanaeo, change of mind, change of mind, change of mind. It's like he, oh, he just keeps adding all of these other elements to it, all of these other elements to it. So, yeah, it's just, oh, okay. And all that Judaism is to you and means to you and embrace him as your Messiah. That, friends, is quite a change. That is quite a change. The beautiful Jewish traditions have not yet died out, even centuries after the destruction of Jerusalem. So meaningful are they to those people. And Peter is saying, in an instant in time, kiss it all goodbye, turn right around, embrace Messiah, and be counted as dead by your whole nation and all the people that care about you and love you. It's a cost that's very high. But that's what repentance is. A total 180-degree turn from everything you knew. Repentance is just that. To reverse your verdict about Jesus, turn from Him, or from sin, to Him. You say, well, can't you get in without doing that? Can't you come to Christ without repentance? John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. It's got to be. Because, my friend, if you're going that way and Jesus is over here, you can't get over here unless you turn around. That's the point. And I believe even in Jewish evangelism today, we've got to preach that same message. Repent for your rejection of your Messiah and turn, if need be, cutting all the cords that bind you to Judaism and face squarely Jesus as your Messiah and embrace Him. That's the message to Israel. And we need to be just as bold in indicting Israel for rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah as we are the Gentiles for their rejection of Christ. I don't think we can back off. We need to say to Gentile and Jew alike, you better change your attitude about Jesus. You better change your mind. That's repentance. And not to repent is just tragic. Just tragic. So Peter calls on him to make a change that is unbelievable. Now he adds this, and I'll say some more about that in a minute, but he says this, and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And at this point, the ritualists find their, their weapon, assuming that, therefore, salvation is a result of repentance and water. But what is he saying? Is baptism critical? Absolutely. Oh, it is very critical. But watch this. This is tremendous. Now, when Peter had done, was done preaching this sermon, I'm sure there was a great reaction among the people. I mean, they, it says that they were pierced in their hearts, and they said, what do we do? They were really rattled, and many of them in their hearts had believed on Messiah, and they had accepted the fact that this was true, that Jesus was the Messiah, and I'm sure that the temptation would have been to say, boy, I'm going to believe this, but I'm not sure to open my mouth about it. I opened my mouth and whew, 
you know. But you know something? There's something distasteful about such a secret disciple. So Peter doesn't want to tolerate any of that. He wants those to come to Christ who are really right on and really serious. So he makes a, a formality here that is graphic as a symbol, but that is even more graphic as a renouncement of Judaism. You see, he's saying, I don't want any secret disciples. If you mean it, I don't only want you to change your attitude, I want you to change your association. Now notice it says in verse 38, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. He made that clear because in Judaism there were all kinds of washings, weren't there? And they could have been washed and it wouldn't necessarily have been connected with Jesus. So he says, I want you to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That was tying them in with him as their Messiah. Now there, I, I think that explains why he says in the name of Jesus, that this is to the Jews and they're like, hey, this washing that you're going to do is going to be, it's, it's you uniting yourself, identifying yourself with the Messiah whom you have killed. It shows your change of mind in a sense that you're changing your mind and now you're identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. Wow, what a transformation. And it meant that their families and all the rest of their world would count them as dead. The most despicable thing that a Jew could do would be to come to Jesus Christ, who was a blasphemer, they had decided, and worthy only of execution. But Peter says, I want you to make a public act of severing your ties with Judaism and a new identification with Jesus Christ. And so I want you to be baptized. Baptism being a symbol of union with Christ. Oh, this was a big step. Dr. Ryrie said, quote, even today for a Jew it is not his profession of Christianity, nor his attendance at Christian services, nor his acceptance of the New Testament, but today even his submission to water baptism that definitely and finally excludes him from the Jewish community and marks him off as a Christian, end quote. That says, I am identifying with Christ. That's a public expression. And we baptize folks in the name of Jesus Christ as a testimony to the world that they have been desirous of uniting with Jesus Christ totally. And that's why Peter insisted on the ordinance. You say, well, it says repent and be baptized. I mean, how do you get around the fact that you've got to be baptized to be saved? Well, very simple. Uh, for example, in Luke 18... We have a good illustration. There was a... And just so that you know, when you baptize in the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that does include the name of Jesus. So the uh, one is Pentecostals then exclude the name of the Father. No, no it's got to be in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, that's Jesus, Holy Spirit, that Jesus would be included in the Trinitarian formula. I think that that's a, a fair way of also describing it. Guy who came to Jesus... And it says in verse 18, a certain ruler said to Jesus, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a good question. It's the same question they asked in Acts 2, basically. And Jesus said to him in verse 22, jumping down, Sell all that you have and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Now, therefore, salvation is a question of economics. In order to be saved, you hawk everything and give your money to the poor. True? Ridiculous. 
Of course salvation isn't a question of, of economics. Salvation isn't a question of giving money to the poor. You say, well, that's what he said. No, that's not what he said. He said, do that and then come and follow me. In other words, there's a barrier in your way, fella. You're never going to know salvation till you get over your big hang-up, which is what? No, I, I, uh, what it was telling him to do was to do something in regards to keeping the law, which would demonstrate his inability to keep the law. Then you come to Christ because Christ kept the law for you. Okay, but so this is a, an obliteration of law, gospel. This is a mess. I know what he's trying to do here, but that, this, is a, this is a mess of what he's doing to that, that story. Money. You see, Jesus read his heart and he knew what that guy really loved, number one. And that was money. And we know that because the guy turned around and went home, said, forget it, I want my money. It's not until you want Jesus Christ more than you want anything else that the conditions are removed. Look, if salvation doesn't occur until someone wants Jesus more than anything else, then I don't know if anyone is saved. Because every, any, any Christian claiming they want Jesus more than anything else is proven not to be a Christian every single day because we constantly demonstrate that we want other things more than Jesus because we put other things before Jesus constantly. So, no, the whole point of that story was to show them that you do love this thing more than me. You're always going to, you're, you're incapable of keeping the law. So, what's your choice? I can't, you did, I believe in you for your imputed righteousness. As long as God knows there's something in the way, he can point that out. And now watch this. The biggest stumbling block to Jewish conversion was the fear of persecution and being unsynagogued and put out of their whole world. And so Peter says, I know that's your big problem, so that's what you're going to have to get out of the way. And Wow, if you do salvation that way, <laughs> that you got to get the, whatever's your biggest thing in the way, you've got to get it out of the way before you can be saved. Hey, whatever it is, you've got to get rid of that in order to be saved. You got to get rid of that in order, you got to get rid of that to be saved. Then it's not even, it's not even salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's salvation by what Jesus did, but you've got to get things out of your way before you can get saved. So, hey, you can't really get saved until you figure out what you love more than Jesus. Until you get rid of that, then you can be saved. And that is a dangerous destruction of the gospel quickly. Baptism would be a public acknowledgement that you were naming the name of Christ, fully aware of what it was going to cost. No secret disciples. The Word of God does not teach baptismal salvation. It does not teach that you're to be baptized to be saved. It simply indicated here that they were to be baptized in response to what had happened in their life as a public confession of their new union with Christ. And it was a high price to pay. So you see, to use this to teach baptismal salvation doesn't make any sense. Water doesn't make it. Water doesn't save anybody. And so this idea of secrecy, Peter avoids and expressly says, repent and be baptized. But I hasten to say the baptism has nothing to do with the salvation. It only pulls out the real from the unreal. It only makes the commitment total, which is really what salvation is all about. But now watch this key point. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the remission of sin. Now, this is where people get confused because they say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, in order that your sins might be forgiven, which means that baptism comes before forgiveness. You've got to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Now, that can't be true because that contradicts the Bible, which says you're not saved by works at all. It also doesn't need to be that way. Listen to this. In studying the word for the remission of sins, which is often translated by those ritualists as in order that, we find it to be the word ace. Ace takes many, many different translations. One of those translations used with verbs of change is the translation because of. It is thus to be translated in Matthew 12, 41, where it says that the people repented because of the preaching of Noah. They repented in response to preaching. Here, we simply give it that meaning, and that meaning it can well have, and it reads this way, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you repent and then you are baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It is a public sign of what has gone on on the inside. And so repentance brought the remission of sins. Baptism only made it visual in terms of a sign. Okay, now this is very, very, very important. This is very important. Now, I tried to, in our study, tried to see if everyone, if I could get everyone in the congregation to determine if they agree with this idea of it's no, for it's because of be you be bat, repent and be baptized because or be baptized because of the remission of sins because you you've received the the forgiveness of sins now be baptized instead of that it produces it but uh we, nobody was able to really to come to any everybody was like nah, I don't really know I don't really know and they couldn't really find anything he pointed to a specific passage that uses the same Greek word I'm going to go back here see if we can find that passage. Baptism comes before forgiveness. You've got to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Now, that can't be true because that contradicts the Bible, which says you're not saved by works at all. It also doesn't need to be that way. Listen to this. In studying the word for the remission of sins, which is often translated by those ritualists as in order that, we find it to be the word ace. Ace takes many, many different translations. One of those translations used with verbs of change is the translation because of. It is thus to be translated in Matthew 12, 41, where it says that the people repented because of the preaching of Noah. They repented in response. Okay, now I'm looking at Matthew 12, 41. All right, I'm going to look, I'm going to go back here. It is this Greek word, so just so, so that you hear it. It's this Greek word. Strong's G, 1519, ice, ice. Ice. He said ace, but it's it's ice, at least according to this. But hey, I'm not going to pick on him because I say Greek words wrong all the time, all right? So it's ice. Now, if you go to Matthew 12, 41, it is used in Matthew. Ice is used in Matthew 12, 41. Here we go. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with the generations and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They didn't repent in order to get the preaching of Jonas. They repented because of the preaching of Jonas. Now it's translated at there. It's not translated for, it's translated at. 
So it does mean that in that particular case, that there, there may be a good example of it right there, that it doesn't say, that doesn't mean repent and be baptized in order to get the remission of sins, repent and be baptized because you have received the remission of sins. So therefore, it does seem possible to interpret it that way. Now, I was I was hoping someone in the congregation would see this. We didn't we didn't get into it, but I, at some point I was going to come back to it. Everyone, so anyone uh, who who is a part of Victory Baptist Church, ma- make sure you write down Matthew twelve forty one, and we will look at it and see if everyone agrees or disagrees. I'm going to back this section up one more time because this is the whole reason we're doing this review. Here we go. Um, Let's go back. I'm going to go back here. Here we go. Baptism comes before forgiveness. You've got to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Now, that can't be true because that contradicts the Bible, which says you're not saved by works at all. It also doesn't need to be that way. Listen to this. In studying the word for the remission of sins, which is often translated by those ritualists as in order that, we find it to be the word ace. Ace takes many, many different translations. One of those translations used with verbs of change is the translation because of. It is thus to be translated in Matthew 12, 41, where it says that the people repented because of the preaching of Noah. They repented in response to preaching. Here, we simply give it that meaning, and that meaning it can well have, and it reads this way, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you repent, and then you are baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It is a public sign of what has gone on on the inside. And so repentance brought the remission of sins. Baptism only made it visual in terms of a sign. Did he say Noah's preaching in Matthew 12, 41? Did he say Noah's preaching in Matthew 12, 41? I'm going to back this up again. Here we go. Let's listen to this again. Water doesn't make it. Water doesn't save anybody. And so this idea of secrecy, Peter avoids and expressly says, repent and be baptized. But I hasten to say the baptism has nothing to do with the salvation. It only pulls out the real from the unreal. It only makes the commitment total, which is really what salvation is all about. But now watch this key point. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. Now this is where people get confused because they say repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, in order that your sins might be forgiven, which means that baptism comes before forgiveness. You've got to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Now, that can't be true because that contradicts the Bible, which says you're not saved by works at all. It also doesn't need to be that way. Listen to this. In studying the word for the remission of sins, which is often translated by those ritualists as in order that, we find it to be the word ace. Ace takes many, many different translations. One of those translations, used with verbs of change, is the translation because of. It is thus to be translated in Matthew 12, 41, where it says that the people repented because of the preaching of Noah. They repented. Okay, okay. This, okay, I don't know what he's reading. He's reading from something. He's reading from something. I don't know what he's reading from, but... If if you look up Matthew 12, 41, it's not Jonah. 
Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with, with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So it's not, it's not Ace, it's Ice, it's not Noah, it's Jonah. Okay, that, and that, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. That, that's fine. It's just he's reading from something. I don't know what he's reading from. I don't know if he's reading from his own notes. And then he messed it up, which I do that all the time. I don't know if he just saw the word Jonah and said the word Noah, like I, I, I possibly could do that. So I just want to make sure we clear, clarify that. It's Matthew 12, 41. It, ice is used there. And it's, they did not, they, um, in fact, let me read it again from this translation, because I don't want to say it incorrectly. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. They repented because of Jonah's preaching. They didn't repent in order to get Jonah's preaching. There's ice. It's used in Matthew and Acts 2, 48 or 238. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins or because of the remission of sins. There, there seems to be at least a textual justification for translating it because of. Repented in response to preaching. Here, we simply give it that meaning, and that meaning it can well have, and it reads this way, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you repent, and then you are baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It is a public sign of what has gone on on the inside. And so repentance brought the remission of sins. Baptism only made it visual in terms of a sign or a symbol. Isn't it good what it says? It's just a footnote in verse 38 about the remission of sins. Isn't it nice to know that when you repent, your sins are forgiven when you come to Christ? Isn't it nice to know that you don't have any sins piling up against you, but that you're free simply to agree with God about your sin and know that He's already forgiven it? First John 2, 12, my and we will stop right there. All right. That, that, that wasn't, he didn't say a lot, but hey, I wanted to review the whole sermon anyway. So we heard all of the context. We heard everything. We got a little bit of cultural background, cultural context. We got a lot there, but there was just that little bit he said about Acts 2.38. He didn't spend a lot. Of, he wanted to go more with conviction. And obviously he was massively, inter, uh, he was uh, uh, massively emphasizing repentance. Now, if this is 1977, 1978, it's not going to be many years. Well, maybe about 10 years. I'd have to look at when the gospel according to Jesus is going to be written by MacArthur. It was, uh, I think it was the late eighties. So this play, in fact, let me just look it up. You can see where you start. He's starting to formulate, you know, what we call Lordship salvation. You can start seeing it coming into play here. Let me look here because I don't want to give you the wrong date for the gospel according to Jesus. Let's see. When was it originally written? All right. The gospel according to Jesus. Hang on. Okay, here we go. Book by John MacArthur. Gospel according to Jesus. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. Um, when was it originally written? When was it originally written? I'm looking, I'm looking. Uh, see here. No, no, no. See here. When is it? See, that says 2008. Uh, 
Egal. Okay, here we go. See, everything's saying 2008. That's not true. Where, where is the, ar- the article about the original? Where is the article about the original? Oh. Okay, well, none of this. All these are saying 2008, 2008, 2008, 2008. That's the updated. Uh, see here, 19. No, that's not, that's not true either. Okay, here we go. No, see, that's the wrong book. There was another book written in 1991 by this, uh, almost by the same title. Um, yeah, let's see here. Uh, everyone is giving me the uh, a different book. Yeah, I think it's 1980-something. I know it's in the 80s. I know it's in the 80s. Um, I'll have to find the original date. I don't have my – if I was at church, I would just pick up my copy, and I could just give you the publication date. But um, for some reason, Google's giving me every other date other than the original date. But the point is, is you're starting to see some of that idea that, hey, hey, we've got too many tares amongst the wheat and we've got to fix this. We got to fix this. We got to. And how do we fix it? Well, hey, we got your you better have true conviction and you better repent. And repent means not just changing your mind. It remains all of these other things. And if you don't do that, your faith is not genuine. Wrong conviction. Your faith is not genuine. If you're not convicted enough, your faith is not genuine. If you don't repent the right way, you're not your faith isn't uh, good enough. So that's why he. Place you can tell where his emphasis was. He wasn't so worried about the baptism thing. He didn't really address it in any in-depth way. I mean, he did. He did at least led us to Matthew twelve forty-one, which is what I was hoping uh, to to get to at church. So we'll definitely have to go back and cover that at church. But um, here you can see where things started to be emphasized, which is going to turn into the gospel according to Jesus, which is going to have an absolutely profound impact on the evangelical world to I, to minimize its impact would be foolish but there you go an hour and 33 minutes hopefully you got a lot from all of that you can email me news if at yahoo.com news if at yahoo.com that's news if at yahoo.com wow that took a long time all right that took a long time there you go all right let me know what you think all right, I'm just adding to our discussion on baptism, but we got a whole lot extra thrown in here. But it connects with our series on law and gospel. Boom. It connects with our previous discussions on repentance. Boom. It, it t- talks about our previous discussions about lordship salvation. Boom. And it, talk, it connects with our discussion about baptism. So we connected it to everything. So hopefully all of that was beneficial. Thanks for listening. News, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great Wednesday. God bless.